All right, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, Acts 17, 1 through 10. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down now have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people of the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. I realize I neglected to pray, so let's go to God and ask his blessing on on our time together here. Our God, our Father, we... uh, When your people were in the wilderness, you commanded the skies above. You opened the doors of heaven. You rained down manna to eat and and gave them the grain of heaven. They ate the bread of angels. You supplied their needs in abundance. Will you now give us the grain of heaven? Will you feed your people for the wilderness crossing? God, may we not complain like the people complained Forgive us when we grow weary of your provision. We are grateful, for we are journeying toward the promised land. Give us sustenance, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The question, what works, is often on our mind. Uh, Pragmatism is a word that's got bad connotations in our circles at least. Um, Just do what works. Uh, But I don't think pragmatism is so much the problem as the goal of our pragmatism, because obviously we want to do what works, what is successful uh, for the right things. So we need to define the results that we are after. We need to define success in life. Success so often equals for us comfort, honestly, or, or that everything will be okay. And in the church, success often equals uh, numerical growth or community of involvement and support or, or whatever. Luke here provides for us a window into uh, true faithfulness. And, and we have a peek here into spirit-empowered, scripture-grounded, Christ-exalting, neighbor-loving faithfulness. And what that looks like in the face of what appears at first to be uh, less than desirable results in Thessalonica. Uh, so first here, Paul and company are 
consistent in what they preach. They have a consistent message. That's the first point is there's a consistent message. Having been asked to leave the city of Philippi, the company uh, with Paul headed mostly west and, and somewhat south on the Roman road. We learned about the Roman road system in Sunday school this morning. This road is called the uh, Via Ingatia. It goes through Philippi and, and really uh, stretches across a good part of the, the Roman Empire. Um, and they left this road. They passed through Amphipolis, which is 33 miles from Philippi, and Apollonia, which is 27 miles, and came to Thessalonica, which is another 35 miles. So 95 miles uh, journey in total from Philippi to Thessalonica. Thessalonica was not like Philippi and that it was uh, not a Roman colony like Philippi was, but it was a major city. Uh, Craig Keener says that Thessalonica was Macedonia's largest port and the capital of its old second district and now residence of the provincial governor. Although the real population much have been, must have been much lower, the highest estimates of Thessalonica's population uh, was, is at about 200,000. Uh, that's quite high. What I've actually heard is probably closer to 30 to 40,000. Still a major city uh, in the region. Uh, the, the historian and philosopher and geographer uh, of the time, of really the time of Jesus around the turn of the century, Strabo called it uh, the metropolis of Macedonia. So this is a major city they've arrived at. And upon arrival, Paul does what he always does, is he goes to the Jewish synagogue to preach the gospel there first. Obviously, as we learned about again in Sunday school, his student of Gamaliel, he had some some clout with he had the opportunity to teach in the synagogues and so that's where he would go first to bring the gospel to the Jews first and then to the Gentile so verse 2 and Paul went in as was his custom and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures there are in this section uh, four major evangelistic uh, verbs, or verbals, action words. And they are helpful and instructive for us as we try to learn how to be faithful in our own evangelism. And the first uh, word, first verb is reasoned. Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Paul reasoned with the Jews from the scriptures. The Greek word is dialogamai, dialogamai, which you can hear the word dialogue from that. That's where we get the word. It means to ponder in one's mind or to revolve in the mind. Um, And when you undertake that activity with other people, you're dialoguing. Um, And when the two of you disagree, you try to convince each other. And maybe even debate or you contend for your position. So this word reason really has this idea of contending for a position. In Jude, verse 9, we read that Michael, the archangel, contended with the devil over the body of Moses. It's the same word that he's contending. Uh, we have, I think, a fear of contention, especially in our society. But it's in- essential to evangelism, to contend for the faith once for all delivered, as Jude said. 
Um, and, and really, to, it's essential that we have the internal resolve that we believe what we believe is true. True enough that it's good for other people, that we want them to believe it, that we want to even convince them to believe it, to contend for it. And it's true, no one can be argued into the faith, but we shouldn't be afraid to reason with people. God is the God of reason. He tells Israel himself, come, let us reason together. The, the word is rational, it's reasonable, and we should be willing to, to make arguments for the faith. So they reasoned from the scriptures, it says. Um, Paul doesn't always openly quote scripture. It depends on who he's talking to. He uses other tools with people who may not be as familiar with the scriptures, but his own rationale is always from the scriptures. His own, the way he thinks is scriptural. And so it's always coming from a scriptural mindset. And he's always reasoning, reasoning with the scriptures, leading people to scriptural conclusions and namely and chiefly leading people to the Christ of scripture. So the first uh, verb there is that he reasoned with them. The next two verbals are two participles that show how Paul reasoned, the, the manner in which he reasoned. He reasoned with them in two ways, explaining and proving. So if we want to know what's involved, and I don't understand, I don't know how to quite reason with people, here's how we do it. We explain and we prove. Explaining here, the Greek word is uh, to open thoroughly what had been closed, is what one lexicon says. I like that definition. To open thoroughly what had been closed. Luke uses the same word twice in Luke 24 when Jesus is revealing himself to the disciples after the resurrection. Um, and first, the first instance is when Jesus is explaining who he is after the resurrection to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they didn't recognize him at first. And in 2431 of Luke, he says, and their eyes were opened. That's the same word here. Their eyes were opened. That's what it means to explain to somebody is to try to open their eyes, to open what had been previously closed. Again, the second instance here in speaking to his disciples, to the, to the 12 or the 11 and dealing with their doubts in 2445, uh, says, Jesus then opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's the same word. He, he explained the scriptures to them. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's what we do when we explain to people, when we explain the gospel to people. My kids love to watch this guy on YouTube, Jared Owen. Uh, he does like these detailed 3D animations of how things work. Um, he likes space, so uh, space shuttle, Mars rovers. Um, he, he also does other things. He's done Big Ben or an, like an oscillating fan. He pulls it apart with an, uh, animation and detail. gives you detailed explanations of how things work. He, he pulls it apart. He opens what had been previously closed. And now my kids could tell you how an oscillating fan works, right? 
So that's what it is we have an opportunity to do in evangelism is we can take the lid off. We can open up what had been previously closed, what had been hidden, and, and help reveal it to people. So that's the first part of reasoning. The first participle there is explaining. And the second one is proving. It says he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that Jesus is the Christ. Um, so again, the Greek here, proving has this idea of laying before. And the verb is used back in chapter 16 of when the jailer laid food before the apostles. That's what it means to lay before. And that's what we do when we prove something is we lay evidence before somebody. We lay out evidence to try to prove that it's true. The word is used that way in Acts 24:13, where Paul says, neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. They can't lay anything out to pr- prove a case against me. The best moments for teachers are... Many of you are or were are those aha moments, right? I I get it. And when you teach, you expend a lot of effort in explaining, in, in opening what had been concealed for people. But we also know sometimes you open what had been concealed and they're not persuaded. Then you have to undertake the process of proving, of convincing them, of getting them to believe that what the truth you have presented to them is uh, the truth. In a courtroom, the goal of the lawyer is to lay out evidence that they believe supports their case. But they would never just kind of lay out the facts. They wouldn't just send an email to the jury, well, here's the facts. No, they, they use the facts to prove their point. They want to send the jury in a particular direction, saying this is how this is, this is what happened. So do we engage in this, this art of convincing people? It's a bit awkward, it's a bit taboo, I think, in our society to convince somebody. It's viewed as arrogant to, to think that you could possibly have answers and that you think I'm wrong and that, that you can correct me, right? I was talking to somebody last week, maybe Anthony, but we were talking about how doubt seems to be worn as a badge of honor in our day. I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm humble. I don't know. But it's false humility. True humility does not lie in doubt and confusion. Oh, well, I'm no smarter than anyone else. I'm not holier than thou. A true humility is found in the recognition that God is and that he has spoken and that he does not stutter and that he has made us rational creatures with a capacity for understanding. There's no humility in doubting what God has said. True humility is found in submission to God's word and in a willingness to sacrifice social credibility to stand for it and for the love of neighbor and to engage in the art of convincing our neighbors. So Paul reasoned with them and the way he reasoned with them was through explaining, through opening what had been revealed and through proving through the scriptures, to to lay before his audience the evidence. And finally here, um, 
the final word is proclaim. This Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. Proclaim means to announce publicly or to publish. And one uh, lexicon, I thought, helpfully said, with often with an included idea of celebrating or commending. So again, it's not just publication, but it's publication with the idea of commending, of celebrating. So pro- proclaim here serves as an umbrella term. It, it, it includes everything that Paul has done so far, including reasoning, explaining, and proving. And we can, I think, become a bit overwhelmed by this, saying, okay, I've got to be able to reason with people. That means I have to understand reason for myself. And I have to try to explain it to people and lay out the evidence and try to convince them to believe it. And they're not going to want to hear it. And it can be a bit overwhelming to us. But let's not forget this piece. This is perhaps the most important, is that to proclaim is to announce or promulgate publicly, often with the idea of celebrating. Celebrating. Let's not forget that what we have to promulgate is good news, worthy of celebration. It's good news to the Jews. Your Messiah has come. Jesus is the Christ. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus is your Christ. It's good news. Or good news to the sinner that the way of salvation has been made or we could present good news to the sufferer that, that, that he will wipe away every tear. Or good news to the religious person of all stripes. Come and find rest in Jesus. Aren't you tired of, of vainly striving toward the pleasure of God on your own? Come and rest in Christ. It's good news. Or even good news to the secular atheist. They may not take it that way, but it is. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's good news. So Paul and his band of fellow missionaries here are consistent in their message. These are the things that they do wherever they go. Their tactics may change a little bit. Their arguments may take on different forms. But their explanations, uh, they may be tailored to a different various audiences, but wherever they go, they're always engaging in these activities. Reasoning, explaining, proving, and proclaiming. And the source for their reasoning never changes either. It's always the Scriptures. Scripture stands as the supreme authority in every engagement. And we'll talk more about actually that next week as we talk about the Bereans and compare the Bereans to the Thessalonians. Um, And the content of their message is always focused on one thing, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have this idea that if we did everything right in our lives or in our evangelism, we wouldn't say this, but if we did everything right, we could control outcomes. You know, look right here in Acts, in Acts 17, we have a formula for ministry. We have reason, explanation, proving, and proclamation. It's a formula. If we do it right, we'll have success. And actually, I think that's true, but we have to define success rightly. 
Because even though Paul and his company here are, are faithful, and they're consistent in their message, as TV commercials say, results may vary. And they do vary, and that's the second point here, is though they have a consistent message, there's inconsistent results. So let's follow the verbs here again, and these are verbs of response. There's two positive verbs of response. The first is that some of them were persuaded. Persuaded. Some of them say, okay, Paul, you got me. Isaiah 53, Jesus, I, I see it. I see your argument. I see your point. In verse 4, some of them, uh, that is some of the Jews from the synagogue, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, which devout Greeks here likely means God-fearers in the synagogues, um, and not a few of the leading women as well. And remember, we've seen this also in past stories. Gentile women of higher social strata were drawn to Judaism, and many uh, of these women were converted to to Judaism, so um, by leading women, it probably means wives of some of the authorities in the city or something like that. Uh, Craig Keener says that as patrons within the church or synagogue, upper, upper class women could also enjoy higher status than was available to them in society at large due to, due to their gender. Social conditions made it easier for well-to-do women than for men to convert. Gentile women were attested as following Judaism more often than Gentile men. So this is wonderful here. Some were persuaded. Even some of the these higher strata women were persuaded. Paul and Silas were, were persuasive. And Jews and Gentiles alike were being saved. And I think, again, that's the most refreshing experience for a preacher or teacher is a click. Somebody's persuaded. Somebody gets it. And praise God for that. So they got it. They were persuaded. And then they continue on their merry way, living as before, right? The second positive verb of response here is they joined Paul and Silas. They joined him. Persuasion, being persuaded, is meaningless if there's no subsequent life change. And in fact, a lack of change shows that the person was never really persuaded at all. One night this week, we were getting the kids ready for bed. Kelly told Abel, you need to go potty before you go to bed. He said, I know. She said, I know you know. I want you to do it. I pointed out, there's a lot of good sermon illustrations in that. So here we are. (laughs) I couldn't wait even a week. But I, I know you know, but I want you to do it doesn't matter if they were persuaded if their actions don't express that persuasion. I mean, is it conceivable that these Jews and God-fearing Greeks and leading women would be persuaded by the gospel and then not join the community of the believing and likewise not join in supporting the mission? It's inconceivable that that would happen. 
People who have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son live within and for the cause of the kingdom. Not perfectly by any stretch, but really and truly live in and for the kingdom. Imagine a Nazi soldier fleeing the evil and tyranny of Nazism because he sees its evil and he's persuaded of the cause of the Allies and he goes to the Allies and said, I'm, I'm on board with you. Okay, see you, la- see you later. I'm headed back to the German camp. No. They were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas. The two things go hand in hand. Now, praise God. Here the formula is working. Reason, explanation, proof, and proclamation. And that formula, if you plug it in, it equals persuasion and joining, right? Every time. Alas, it's not formulaic. Um, We have some verbs of negative response here. In verse 5, but the Jews uh, were not convinced and actually made some reasonable counterpoints. Is that what it says? But the Jews were jealous. The Jews were jealous. I mentioned earlier that doubt does not equal humility. Let me warn also against the converse. There's merit to the criticisms of reformed people that we can be a bit haughty and triumphalist. We know that only God can grant spiritual understanding and everyone who thinks otherwise is really dumb. Even though the foundations of our theology scream to the exact opposite, we think we, can, we, we have somehow come to these persuasions because we are smarter. We've seen the reason and we followed it through. We followed the logic and arrived at the co- correct conclusions. If you notice, the reason that the Jews did not arrive at the correct conclusion is sin, not stupidity. It's true, we have followed the logic. Our beliefs are unshakably reasonable. But we have only come to see that because God has given us His Holy Spirit of illumination for for nothing good in us. Rather, He has chosen the weak to shame the strong in order to bring glory to His name. So they were jealous. The Jews were jealous. Their foolish hearts were darkened by their own agendas and ambitions. Paul and Silas took away some of their devotees, even some of the rich, advantageous people like these leading women. They're not concerned with the logic of it, with the reason of it. They're blinded by selfish ambition. We have to remember this when conveying the gospel, that it's not necessarily a failure of communication that our, our, or, or that our listeners are weak in their mental faculties. It's that we preach to hearts that are dead in sin and trespasses and suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And their minds are are capable and intelligent, but they're slaves in service to their corrupt hearts. They're given over to the God of self. The tools of our trade are proclamation of the gospel in reason, explanation and proofs. 
together with prayer. But our hope is not in our tools. Our hope is in God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And our own conversion and illumination experiences bear this out. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 1 through 6 of our own experience. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That was us. That's you and me. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the Jews... Objection was not an intellectual one. It was a sinful one. They were jealous. They were following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. And the results of the consistent preaching of the gospel in this instance were not positive on a human scale. They remained unconvinced by Paul's arguments. And they were not just unpersuaded, but they did not care to be persuaded. They did not want to be persuaded. The second verb of negative response here is actually a set of verbs, verbs of violence. That's what I'm calling them. They responded violently to Paul and the gospel. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find him, Find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, authority, shouting uh, two accusations here. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. Um, so Thessalonica apparently had a bit of a um, street bum, <laughs> thug problem. Uh, Darrell Bach says, despite the city's economic strength, many people in Thessalonica were poor and many were unemployed. Ancient examples attest that the idle unemployed of the marketplace, usually despised in ancient sources, could be stirred to a mob action. Uh, it's a brief aside, but I never really noticed the connection before. And it, this, this story really adds color to what Paul says in, in 1 Thessalonians. Um, it's very interesting. Think about these, this, this problem with people in the street. And then what Paul says, actually, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 12, where he says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked uh, night and day, that we might not burden in any of you. 
It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves as an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. I think this story in Acts with, with the mob and the men who um, could be stirred into a mob here adds a lot of color to that, that command in Second Thessalonians. Nevertheless, the Jews take advantage of this abundance of wicked rabble and incite a mob. And this is the second city in a row that a mob is incited against Paul. And Paul and company here are gaining a bit of a reputation for themselves. It's becoming somewhat known. It says they are turning the world upside down. However, actually, the, the, the accusation is unfounded. Paul and his companions are quite peaceful. They're not the ones stirring up a violent mob in the city. In contrast to Paul, these men forsake reason altogether. Neither their actions have, they they have no merit. They come before the Roman magistrate here and they're all, it says they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. To be sure, Paul and Silas are saying that there is another king, Jesus. But he is the king of the king. And is this Jesus going to raise up and, and usurp the throne of Claudius, the emperor? Is he a threat to Claudius in that sense? Which is what they're accusing. No, he is a king who is ruling from heaven, who already died and left the world. And in fact, he is a king who commands his people to obey their governing authorities, who are, as Justin Martyr said, the earliest, one of the earliest apologists, he said that Christians are actually model citizens. Last time that these men were accused, they sang hymns in prison. And when the doors and the stocks were opened, they stayed in. So unable to find Paul, they dragged Jason before the authorities. And uh, Keener again here points out that as their host, Jason, uh, Jason is held responsible for their actions and required to post bond for them um, as if they were members of his household. Nevertheless, the officials possibly recognize that Paul and Silas pose little real threat to that to order and simply accommodate the mob to allow the situation to quiet down. Um, and the authorities may have been satisfied with this solution, but surely the Jews were not. And so the brothers take Paul and Silas and sneak them out of the city by night and send them to Berea. Once again, here we see that this is not the ideal reception of the gospel. There are mixed reviews here. Some are persuaded, others respond violently. So as Christians, we preach a consistent message and we get inconsistent results. But in all of it, we see, this is the final point, is that we have a consistent king. 
true. Paul and Silas preach another king besides Caesar, a king higher than Caesar, higher than any earthly king. At the end of the day, we are all emissaries, not of ourselves or of another king, but of that king. He sends his word out into the world through his messengers, and it will not return void. It always accomplishes what he intends. For some, it goes out to salvation, like those who were persuaded. And for others, it goes out for judgment. But it always goes out to the supreme glory of the one who sends it. So I'll close here with a word from 2 Corinthians 2, 14-17. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Amen.